0: It's History Go Time. I'm 35 years old, physically at least, and it's weird to think of myself as any kind of adult, let alone being old enough to recognize that history has happened on my watch, in my lifetime. It's upsetting. I mean, a lot has happened in the last 35 years, but I can think of two genuine epochs that have occurred in my lifetime. Two points when you can legitimately divide history into a before and an after. The first was 19 years and a few days ago, when 11-9 happened. On September 10th, 2001, things were one way. 24 hours, four planes, and nearly 3,000 lives later, and things were very, very different, and they've never gone back. A similar thing is happening right now. COVID-19. Coronavirus. This is another epoch. Things have changed forever. No matter what the outcome of this pandemic is, no matter what happens, things will never go back to the way they were. They might go back to something very similar, but it will never be quite the same ever again. How is COVID treating you, by the way? And if you're listening in the future, how did COVID treat you? And how do you still have internet in the irradiated wastes that used to be the cities of man? I know that for me, at least, the days are sort of blurring together. The weeks and the months are just a smudge in my memory. I'm recording this show on a Tuesday, and I swear that yesterday was Friday. And that the day before that was March. If I'm being perfectly honest... If it weren't for all of my devices telling me what the day was, I would not have the faintest clue what day it was. And that's the point of today's show. If you didn't have a device to tell you what day it was, would you know? And even more to the point, would you know what date it was? And when I say device, I don't just mean phones and computers. A calendar is a device which facilitates the tracking of time. And it's something that was invented precisely because humans aren't great at tracking time. Think about it. When you're driving, how long do you think you spend waiting at a red light? A minute? Two? Maybe even three? The average wait time for a red light cycle is 36 seconds. We aren't great at tracking time. The only reason that I know that today is Tuesday, the 15th of September, is because of the five local real estate agents who drop a calendar fridge magnet in my letterbox every January. Without that, I I wouldn't have the faintest idea. And there's something else that's noteworthy about this momentous year of 2020. It's a leap year. February had 29 days this year. This year, the year that many people think is entirely too long already, it had an extra day in it. Why does that happen? What is a leap year? And why could the concept of a leap year have decided the fate of the Roman Republic? And perhaps the biggest question of all, Damo, surely you can't tie every concept you think of to Caesar crossing the Rubicon, can you? Hold on to your butts. I'd like you to imagine a time in ancient history. A time when they didn't have fridges or magnets or real estate agents with a cousin in the printing business. I want you to imagine that the year is 48 BCE. You're a Roman citizen. You can be anyone from a farmer to a senator. It doesn't matter. This affects everyone. Are you imagining it? Good. Do you know what day it is? Probably not. And if you're a Roman citizen in 48 BCE, the date is pretty much the last thing you care about. Because in 48 BCE, Rome is at war. With itself. In ancient Rome, I'm talking the Roman Republic here, a citizen couldn't be prosecuted for anything if they held office. Governor, consul, tribune, if you were an official, you were immune to prosecution. This system is, of course, predicated on the idea that people are inherently good and just won't go out and abuse their ability to commit crimes with impunity. I'll let you guess how well that worked out. Gaius Julius Caesar, during his tenure as the governor of Gaul, may have committed some slight serious war crimes and genocides, and he was facing prosecution. He'd also broken a lot of laws in Rome as well. Caesar had made a lot of enemies during his lifetime, and all of them would dearly love to see him stand trial. They didn't care about the crimes themselves, there was no such thing as a Roman politician who wasn't massively corrupt. All that mattered was that you could get someone into the courthouse, put him on the stand, But you couldn't do that until they were out of office. Caesar's term as governor of Gaul is almost up. This would make him fair game. So he's looking for ways to get elected to another position, in this case another term as consul, so that he can keep his diplomatic immunity rolling. Diplomatic immunity! Meanwhile, his enemies in the Senate have just found a technicality in one of the laws that would allow them to terminate Caesar's command early. Just been revoked. It was a weak technicality, it was a pedantic misrepresentation of some specific wording in the law, but it was enough for them to be able to claim that they were acting legally and terminate Caesar's command. And because of lawyers acting like lawyers, Italy was about to burn. It's beginning to look like Caesar is about to become a private citizen again. This does not appeal to him. Rather than face a trial in the famously rigged Roman courts, Caesar decided to go with option B. In this case, option B was: gather his incredibly experienced army, cross the Rubicon River into Roman territory under arms, and declare the entire eternal city to be Charlie Murphy's couch. Know, just almost just, just jump up and grind my feet at somebody's couch. For their part, the Roman Senate declared Caesar to be an enemy of the state as you tend to do when people go renegade and show up with an army. The man they appointed to stop him was Gnaeus Pompeius Magnus, a.k.a. Pompey. Pompey was already effectively the ruler of Rome at this point, something he hadn't achieved entirely legally. But Caesar's rebellion gave Pompey's side an excuse for the power grab they'd already made. These two men, along with Marcus Crassus, had once made up a group known as the Triumvirate, and they had been the most powerful men in Rome. Now, like the Beatles, the Triumvirate has split up. Marcus Crassus was dead, slaughtered in the Parthian Desert, his corpse turned into a puppet, Caesar had rebelled, and Pompey was the one opposing him. I'm always walking a tightrope of how much of the minutiae to go into, and how much backstory to give. This is a really complicated period with dozens of factors, and I'm painting with really broad strokes here, but it's worth mentioning that there isn't exactly a good side and a bad side here. Caesar was legitimately a danger to the Republic, and he had actually committed most of the crimes of which he was accused, but Pompey was just as guilty of just as many things, and at this point, he was even more corrupt than Caesar. He just happened to be on the right side of the political spectrum at this point. Remember kids, it's only corruption when the other side does it. I don't think I mentioned this when I covered Crassus in the earlier episode, but Rome had two political factions. The Popularis and the Optimates. In a lot of ways it was similar to politics today, and much like politics today, it isn't accurate to say that they were left and right wing but more right-wing and super-lunatic right-wing. Or maybe loosely progressive and conservative. Caesar was a populari. These were the people for the working class, the plebeians, the populace, hence populari. This was also the political faction of Gaius Marius, who lost the last civil war about a decade ago. Pompey was an optimate. Optimates were basically Tories. This was the side of Lucius Sulla that had won the previous civil war. So, while this current conflict between Caesar and Pompey is very much about Julius Caesar's personal ambition, it is, at face value at least, along political lines, kinda, sorta, maybe. Caesar was the de facto head of the Populares, while Pompey was Optimate Prime. Megatron must be stopped, no matter the cost. So when it became apparent that Caesar was making a play for Rome, the Senate turned to Pompey to defend the state. And as a way of indicating how much I'm simplifying things here, that one sentence just summed up about three years of bitter internecine politics, power grabs, and failed negotiations, but the result was the same. Pompey was, at the time, Rome's greatest general, and he was pretty much the only one who could stop Caesar and his legions. But there was a widespread feeling that it could just as easily have been Pompey marching on Rome and they'd be turning to Caesar instead. One of those sliding doors situations. Pompey wasn't some great patriot the Senate just wanted somebody other than Julius Caesar. So Pompey had been entrusted with defending the Eternal City. But Pompey's legions, they weren't in Rome. He was the governor of Spain, and that was where he left his army. It was against the law to bring troops into Rome. That's why the whole thing with Caesar was such a big deal. He had the only army going around. The Senate asked Pompey to rally an army to oppose Caesar, and... Pompey was pretty chill about the whole thing. I mean, he was quoted as saying, I have but to stamp my feet, and an army shall appear from the ground. Well, Caesar crossed the Rubicon, Pompey stomped his feet, and legionaries didn't suddenly burst out of the ground like daffodils. So Pompey made a tactical withdrawal to Greece, and then locked Italy down in a blockade. He effectively abandoned Rome to Caesar. This was a sound strategy, even if it was unpopular. Caesar was in Rome with an army, and Pompey was in Rome without an army. It doesn't matter how good a commander you are, if you've got nobody to command, you're going to struggle for a win. So it was better to flee Rome, and go to one of the satellite states, and then bleed Caesar from there. Pompey had all of the Roman provinces to draw from, and Caesar didn't. Caesar had what he already had, and that was it. He wasn't getting any more reinforcements. So the longer Pompey could keep Caesar from any decisive engagements, the better. And because of this, Caesar was in a bit of a bind. He had a good army, sure, and he had Rome, that's great, but that wasn't enough. Pompey had literally the rest of the world, and while it would take him a while to mass his troops, they were coming eventually. Caesar didn't have the resources to go the full 18 rounds. He needed a knockout. He needed to go to Greece and get Pompey. And there were only two ways to get to Greece at this point. One was a narrow land route through Illyricum, which Pompey could very easily defend. By narrow land route, I mean treacherous mountain pass that only a crazy person would attempt to cross. You'd think that a desperate and brilliant Julius Caesar might be bold enough to try this and it might take Pompey by surprise, but ever since Hannibal had done exactly that thing two centuries before, the Romans had kind of learned that it's worth preparing for the off chance that a gifted crazy person might cross a mountain range to catch you with your knickers down. So that's out. The second way into Greece was the relatively short hop across the Adriatic Sea. An amphibious invasion seemed to be the best solution. It's probably going to be easier, and it's definitely going to be quicker. There were three problems with this, though. Problem the first. Pompey had a fleet blockading Italy just in case someone were trying to, I don't know, launch a massive amphibious invasion of Greece. Problem the second. Caesar only had enough ships to ferry across half of his army at a time. That meant that not only did he have to break this blockade, he had to break it three times. Once to get half his army into Greece, then again to get back to Rome, and then a final time with the other half of his army. Problem the third. The blockade was commanded by one Marcus Calpurnius Bibulus. Bibulus was a huge dickwad. He was an arrogant braggart, a chauvinist, a snob, not terribly bright, but convinced of his own importance. His entire career, up to and including this point, had been making everyone else's life worse to try and promote himself. He's like an ancient Roman version of Tony Abbott, and he really, really has it in for Caesar. We need to back up a bit and give this dude some attention. Ten years before this story, in 59 BCE, Julius Caesar was elected consul of Rome. This is kind of like the president of Rome. But Rome has this system where they don't just have one consul, they have two. This is supposed to be a sort of check and balance kind of system, because Romans are superstitiously scared of monarchy, and they will turn violent at the very suggestion of a king. So by having two consuls at the same time, the idea is that nobody can become too powerful. In reality, throughout most of the Roman Republic, anything bad that happened to Rome can usually be traced back to bickering between the two consuls. So in 59 BCE, Caesar is elected consul, mostly through the machinations of the rest of the Triumvirate, Pompey and Crassus. They also plan to get another of their guys elected as the other consul, I would give you his name, but the feedback I get from this show is that you guys like as few names as possible, so my apologies to ancient Roman Bill Shorten. However, there is a significant anti-Triumvirate block in the Roman Senate, and these people have a general hatred of the Triumvirate and a particular dislike of Julius Caesar, for a variety of reasons, one of them having to do with a cross-dressing sex fiend who I will get to in another show down the line. This anti-Caesar coalition manages to block the election of the other triumvirate candidate, and instead, the guy who ends up getting the job was Marcus Calpurnius Bibulus. Bibulus wasn't really anyone's first choice, he was a protest vote. And that's why you need to be careful with a protest vote, because what if they win? So Caesar and Bibulus are now co consuls This is like having Tupac and Biggie Smalls as co-presidents. They already didn't like each other for a long time for various reasons, but things are about to get, well, messy. The first thing that Caesar does as Consul is to introduce a bill that would grant land to retiring soldiers. This is Politics 101, then and now. You want to pork barrel a bit to reassure everyone that they voted for the right guy. This was a very popular bill. Soldiers made Rome great, everyone loves soldiers, soldiers deserved land. What's not to like? The public loved this bill. Nobody loses here. It's a slam dunk. Bibulus, who, remember, is Tony Abbott, said no. He blocked the bill, specifically because it was coming from Caesar. To quote Abbott, when in doubt, vote no. So Bibulus voted no. This did nothing to improve Bibulus's relations with the plebeians. And he didn't care. Bibulus was something of an aristocratic snob. He treated the plebs with contempt, something which made him even more unpopular when he vetoed the bill. And when the public complained about this, he said to them that he didn't care what commoners thought they were beneath him. Oof. So the bill is about to go to a vote, and Caesar had stacked the vote to make sure it got through. It's basically a done deal at this point, and Bibulus knows that he's about to lose his first real test as consul. Caesar proposed a bill. He was trying to block it. The bill's going to go through. It's going to look like he lost. But then Bibulus has a brainwave. He'll go religious. Again, still as effective today as it was back then. You play the God card. He says, ah, oh, the omens aren't good for this bill. I've, I've read the entrails of some pigeons. I've looked at the tea leaves. I spoke to a naked chick who was high on natural gas. And all signs point to this. If, look, if we vote yes on this bill, the gods are going to be angry at us. I've got nothing against the bill. I'm fine with the bill. It's the gods who don't want it to pass. Now, playing the god card in ancient times was a pretty big deal. They were a superstitious lot this could have potentially worked. Except for one thing. Rome had something known as the Pontifex Maximus, the High Priest of Rome. Pontifex sounds a lot like pontiff, what we call the Pope. So a Pontifex Maximus was, essentially, a super-Pope. And at this point in time, the Pontifex Maximus was, none other than, Gaius Julius Caesar. So Bibulus has just said, look, we can't vote on this bill. The gods will be angry. And Caesar has responded with, hmm, you got a point there. We'd better ask the Pope just to make sure. Oh, wait, that's me. Everybody get your voting faces on. The vote starts to go ahead. Bibulus is getting desperate so he gets on a soapbox and he starts shouting at the crowd trying to stop the vote he, you know saying that the gods will be angry great disasters will strike Rome cats and dogs will start living together etc just anything to make a scene and try and start a riot Caesar had a hunch it might come to this though and he'd planned accordingly the night before he had a chat with his lictors his bodyguards and he knocked out a plan and said Look, if Bibulus gets shouty, you know what to do. So Bibulus got shouty, and Caesar's lictors knew that this was the signal. They went backstage and they grabbed some buckets that they had um, prepared earlier. Uh, these buckets were from the latrine. Caesar's lictors took the buckets and tipped them all over Bibulus. And it's at this point that Caesar turns to the crowd and he says, All right, who are you going to believe? Caesar, your boy, Triumvir, Super Pope, or the guy who's covered in shit. The crowd turned on Bibulus and he ran away crying. For the rest of his term as Consul, he barely left his house, which meant that Caesar was effectively the sole Consul, something that was very rare indeed. And... Bibulus went down as the William McMahon of Roman consuls. So, Caesar and Bibulus, they weren't the best of friends. Coincidentally, Bibulus also served a stint as the governor of Syria, replacing the former governor there who was Marcus Crassus, after Crassus's posthumous career shift into acting. But back to the A storyline, Roman Civil War. Julius Caesar needs to get to Greece. And to do that, he needs to break the blockade not once, not twice, but thrice. The blockade is being commanded by none other than his old friend and co-consul, Bibulus, the guy he once bescumbered. (laughs) And they say that German has a word for everything. (laughs) Did you know that English has a word meaning to cover in feces? Bescumbered. Say it with me, bescumbered. It's like wiping your ass with silk. On January 4th, 48 BCE, Julius Caesar sets sail into the Adriatic, and he attempts to run the blockade, and he does. Quite easily, actually. He gets to Greece entirely without incident. Bibulus was caught completely unawares. His fleet was nowhere to be seen. Most of his ships weren't patrolling the Adriatic at all. They were all safely in harbour. So, hang on. Why was the blockade fleet, the crucial deterrent to keeping the great Julius Caesar out of Greece and on the back foot, why weren't they out there trying to... stop the thing I just said? Well, because it's the 4th of January. All of this action is taking place in the Northern Hemisphere, so January the 4th is pretty much the middle of winter. Nobody would attempt an amphibious assault in the middle of winter. That's even crazier than trying to move an army through a mountain range. Not even Caesar's that good. There is no way he'd try and cross during the middle of winter. And on this count, Bibulus was entirely correct. There was no way Caesar would try and cross the Adriatic in the middle of winter. But there was something that Caesar knew that Bibulus didn't. Caesar knew the date. This wasn't a dangerous winter crossing at all. It was actually a difficult, but not impossible, autumn crossing. The date wasn't really January 4th, 48 BCE. It was actually still October. The Roman calendar wasn't a solar calendar. It wasn't tied to the orbit of the sun, but to the phases of the moon. This meant that it drifted out of alignment with the seasons every year. Every year, someone would have to manually adjust the calendar to make sure that it was running on the right time. But a lunar calendar isn't that radically different to a solar calendar. It's, it's out a couple of days, sure, but how did the date shift so far as to fall behind more than two months? Well, at this point in time, the Roman calendar hadn't been adjusted in 10 years. The reason that the calendar hadn't been adjusted in ten years was because the person responsible for aligning the calendar, he hadn't been in Rome. He'd been otherwise occupied. He had, in fact, been in Gaul. The person responsible for making sure the Roman calendar was correct was the Pontifex Maximus, the super-pope, Gaius Julius Caesar. He'd been making the necessary adjustments for the last 10 years, but he and Rome weren't exactly on speaking terms. So at this point, Caesar is the only one who knows that winter is still a fair way off yet. The first half of Caesar's armies made landfall in Greece without incident, and the ships made it back past enemy lines without incident. They went back before Bibulus could mobilize, so the first two of the three crossings happened without anything really happening. But Bibulus did manage to get the blockade back up in time to block the third and final trip. But, by this point, Caesar already had half an army in Greece. Bibulus has been humiliated by Caesar again. So, Bibulus goes into full Admiral mode now. Caesar and half an army had just slipped through behind his back. This was not going to happen again. He hates getting beaten by Caesar. Now, he was patrolling the seas with gusto, and he was out there leading from the front. Bibulus had a bit of a reputation for being a bellicose idiot, and this slip-up wasn't helping his image, so it was time to turn things around. More patrols, more often. We will stop the boats. It wasn't all sunshine and lollipops for Jules either at this point. He only had half of his army available, which, if my maths is correct, is significantly less than a whole army. And Pompey had just found out that Caesar was there with only half of his army. And Pompey's math also told him that this was significantly less than a whole army. So Pompey rides out with his full army and besieges Caesar. He doesn't actually need to risk his forces against Caesar, though, who has dug in like an Alabama tick. He just needs to starve Caesar out. Caesar couldn't break out of Pompey's siege. His only hope was to try and break the naval blockade and get supplies and reinforcements from Rome. Rome wasn't a naval power. In fact, the legend goes that at the beginning of the First Punic War against Carthage, who were themselves a great naval power, the Romans didn't even know how to build a warship. They actually found an abandoned Carthaginian trireme washed up on a beach somewhere, and they reverse-engineered it from there. This is to say that the Roman ships weren't built for long periods at sea. They had to come back to shore to resupply quite frequently, every couple of days or so. This meant that Bibulus's blockade would frequently need to come back to harbour. So Caesar, he sent raiding parties to all of these local harbours and anchorages to deny Bibulus a place to dock his ships and force him to call off his blockade which would in turn allow Caesar to get troops and supplies from Rome and be able to break out of the Siege of Pompey. And this actually started to work. The ships couldn't come near land without one of Caesar's buggery squads waiting for them, so they were out there, they were hungry, they were thirsty, and it was getting towards winter. Bibulus got desperate. It was time to strike a deal. He sent an emissary to Caesar's camp to parley, And what happened next was pure bibulous. The exchange went something like this. We need you to stop attacking the harbors so that we can come ashore and resupply. In exchange for what? Huh? Well, the way that negotiations usually work is that I have something you want, anchorage, so you need to give me something that I want in return. And at this point, Bibulus' envoy says, I don't think I'm actually authorized to give you anything. And to this, Caesar responded with, I don't think you understand the concept of negotiation. Suffice it to say that no deal was reached. So by now, it really is winter. It's not that phony Smarch weather, it's actual winter now. It was cold, the seas were angry. There was no food, no fresh water. Being on a ship patrolling the Adriatic was a spectacularly unpleasant thing to be doing. And a stupid thing to be doing. If you dry docked your navy because of the weather in late October, do you think personally leading an increased naval presence in the middle of winter with no supplies is a good idea? <gasps> oh, lousy smart weather. <laughs> In the winter of 48 BCE, the actual winter of 48 BCE, Marcus Calpurnicus Bibulus contracted pneumonia and died. Caesar had made him look stupid again, and his response was to be even more stupid. And again, he had refused to compromise with Caesar, refused to concede an inch, and now because of that, he was dead. There was no battle, there was no last stand worthy of the bards and the poets, just a foolish old man who refused to come in from the cold. With Bibulus dead, Caesar's troops on the mainland saw an opportunity and they broke through the blockade. Spearheaded by Caesar's then second-in-command, a man himself known more for his blaster than his brains, Marcus Antonius, Mark Antony if you will. They made landfall and reinforced a desperate Julius Caesar. What happens next I'll be covering in depth in a future show because it's incredible. As in what happens actually defies credibility. In short, Caesar and his army are trapped by Pompey's army. Pompey is trying to starve Caesar into submission. Caesar decides that he needs to break away and restock and fight another day. But he can't retreat because Pompey will chase him down. So he gets his men to start building a wall around Pompey's army. He pulls the Rorschach from Watchman line of None, of you seem to understand. I'm not locked in here with you. <laughs> You're locked in here with me. Caesar's plan was to build a wall that cut Pompey's army off from their water supply. Caesar may be starving, but Pompey needs water more than Caesar needs food. Pompey, meanwhile, sees Caesar making a wall and says, Walls! Why didn't I think of that? And then he gets his men to start building their own wall to try and box Caesar in. It's a wall-off. If there's one thing in history I wish I could see, I'm pretty sure it's this. Two armies frantically trying to build walls faster than the other Kind of like the light bikes in Tron, but with the Tetris soundtrack in the background. Pompey would eventually realize that instead of competitive wall building, he should maybe use his army as an army. And he did. He attacked Caesar, and Pompey managed to rout Caesar at Dyrrachia. But interestingly, he chose not to pursue the fleeing Caesarians. This would prove to be a hinge moment in history not pursuing a fleeing enemy cost Pompey the war. Caesar himself claimed that, quote, the enemy would have won today were they commanded by a winner. So Caesar was able to withdraw, Pompey didn't chase him, and a month later, the two armies would meet again at a place known as Pharsalus. At Pharsalus... Julius Caesar pulled one of the greatest tactical moves of all time, and he completely outplayed Pompey and crushed the Optimates. Pompey's army was shattered, and Caesar, he was a winner. He pursued the advantage. He made sure that there was no chance of Pompey's troops ever recovering from this. Pompey only just managed to get out in time, and Pompey decided to flee to Egypt, where he hoped to gain asylum with the pharaoh there. Ptolemy XIII. Egypt was an ally of Rome at this point, and Pompey hoped that they'd be friendlier to him than they would be to Caesar, because Pompey was kind of known to them. Pompey had been the great Eastern hero, while Caesar was off conquering everything to the west of Rome. So there was a bit of familiarity there. But, Egypt was having its own civil war at this point. Ptolemy XIII was having a bit of sibling rivalry over the throne with his sister, Cleopatra. Ptolemy saw which way the wind was blowing in Rome, and he decided to back the winning horse, hoping to get some Roman assistance in his civil war. So when Pompey rocks up in Egypt, before he can even get off the boat, Ptolemy has him assassinated. And when Caesar finally arrives weeks later, he wasn't in a rush, Ptolemy presented him with the preserved head of Pompey, and he says, hey, look, I took care of that Pompey guy for you. Uh, Will you help me with my civil war? But here's the kicker. Caesar and Pompey might have been on opposing sides. They might have been fighting a bloody civil war. People were dying all over the place. But Caesar and Pompey weren't exactly enemies. I mean, at this point, they hated each other. I I wouldn't call them friends. Being at war tends to put a strain on any relationship. But once upon a time, the two were very close. Julius Caesar was actually Pompey's father-in-law, even though Pompey was six years older than him. Pompey had married Caesar's daughter, Julia, and he loved her very dearly. This was kind of weird. Pompey actually used to get teased about this. You know, Haha, Pompey loves his wife. Romans weren't exactly faithful, but Pompey was. So when Julia had died in childbirth some years previously, Caesar and Pompey bonded over their shared grief. They were close. And Caesar didn't want Pompey dead. Caesar was known for his clemency. He actually wanted to pardon Pompey. And now, that was impossible because he had Pompey's severed head in his hand. Told me the 13th done fucked up. Caesar wasn't going to be helping him in this civil war. And the other thing that influenced the result was when Caesar arrived at the palace in Alexandria. Uh, He was pissed off at Ptolemy for killing Pompey and he said, hey, look, I've had a bit of a rough decade. I've traveled a long way. I've just been presented with the head of my son-in-law. I need to rest for a bit. I'll sort you out in the morning. And Caesar goes to the palace to rest and have a bit of Caesar time. But one night, a carpet salesman shows up at the palace and he asks Caesar if he wants to buy a carpet. Caesar's like, dude, seriously, read the room. And this salesman is like, no, 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 trust me. You want to check out this carpet I just brought you. And he brings in a rolled up carpet. And he unrolls this carpet and out jumps Cleopatra. She had smuggled herself across enemy lines into the palace in a carpet to meet with Caesar. Now, Julius Caesar was a salty dog at the best of times. This had to have tickled all of his fancies simultaneously. Cleopatra says to Caesar, will you help me win this civil war against my brother? And Caesar says, what do I get in return? And Cleopatra says, well, how about these bum-ass titties? And that's how the Egyptian civil war was decided. Unlike Bibulus, Cleopatra knew that when you're negotiating with someone, you need to give them something that they want. And Caesar, he always wanted the titty. Caesar ended up spending a fair bit of time in Egypt, as it turned out. During his rather infrequent refractory periods, Caesar ruminated on the things that he had left on his bucket list. There weren't many. He was the Pope, he was the President, the Dictator, and Imperator. There were only about nine people in the known world that he hadn't slept with, male or female. But one thing still bugged him. It was still his job to monitor and adjust the calendar every year, and even though he could literally make time, he became fascinated with the Egyptian calendar. It was so much better than the Roman one. This intrigued Caesar because if he could automate the process of fixing the calendar, then he'd have more time for sexing, which was important because the dude had a rather full dance card. So he got together with an astronomer by the name of Sosigenes of Alexandria, and together they hammered out a new system. As I said before, the Roman calendar was a lunar calendar. It followed the phases of the moon. Moon, month, month. You might see how this could be a problem if you're trying to fit a lunar calendar into a solar year. It doesn't match up. A lunar calendar is 355 days. A solar orbit is 365 days. That's 10 days short of the magic number. The Egyptians were on a system that the various Mesopotamians had used for thousands and thousands of years, a solar calendar equating to 365 days. That's 12 months of 30 days, with an extra five days added in to even things out. If you know anything about the history of mathematics, you recognize this is looking very Babylonian. Uh, Babylonians counted in base 60. It's way more flexible than base 10. If you want to know more, check out my book. The Babylonians had calculated how long a solar year was... About a couple of thousand years before God apparently created the heaven and the earth, which must have messed with all their calculations, having a herefore unknown supreme being creating a new universe on top of the one you've been living in for some time. So the Egyptian calendar was good. It had worked well for a few millennia, but it did have a flaw. Twelve times thirty is three hundred and sixty, which is five days short. These days were then added in manually, which isn't a big deal, but Caesar was going for zero effort. He wanted it to be automatic. So Caesar and Sisygones just sort of sprinkled those five extra days throughout the year. Some months would have 31 days, others would have 30. And they dicked around with February because February was considered unlucky. Look, it's, it's not worth going into. If you want to know more, just look up the Lupercalia. Whatever reasons. But after all was said and done, All 365 days were accounted for, and all was well with the calendar. Or was it? Sisygones was a really smart dude. Greek mathematicians knew their shit. It was 200 years before this that they'd calculated the circumference of the Earth to more than 98% accuracy using nothing but a ruler and a shadow. So Sisygones said to Caesar, yeah, this calendar is... it's good. It's almost there. But there is one problem. A year isn't exactly 365 days. It's 365 and a quarter. So they decided that every fourth year there would be an extra day. Traditionally, extra days added by the Pontifex Maximus were put into February because it was the spooky evil dead month. So Caesar and Sisyginus automated the system so that every fourth year, An extra day was automatically added to February, and just like that, the calendar was fully automated. But the job wasn't quite complete yet. The Roman calendar was still out of sync. Jules had never actually fixed it, even after he used it to win the Civil War. So in the year 48 BCE, Julius Caesar, as Pontifex Maximus, Consul, and Dictator, straight up added 90 days to the calendar. So, for any of you going to a trivia night at some point in the future, if you're ever asked what the longest year in human history was, it's not a trick question. It was 48 BCE, which had 445 days. And the calendar that Julius Caesar and Sisygones came up with became known as the Julian calendar. And it's pretty much what we still use today. And now it's time for the pedants corner. No, we don't use the Julian calendar today. We use the Gregorian calendar there's a slight difference. Sisigone's math was amazing, but it wasn't perfect. A year isn't an exact 365.25 days. It's actually 365.24219 days, which is pretty damn close for somebody eyeballing it 2,000 years ago. But over those thousands of years, the calendar did start to drift slightly. People had been noticing this for a while, including folks like Dante Alighieri in thirteen hundred. The Catholic Church became extremely interested in this problem because for a cult based around an imaginary Mesopotamian blood god, they're super concerned with celebrating Easter at the right time for some reason. So they commissioned some astronomers and mathematicians, different kinds of mathematicians and a statistician, and came up with a new calendar to address this. They're a colourful bunch. They've been dubbed the Three Musketeers. (laughs) And we laugh legitimately. There is a mathematician, a different kind of mathematician, and a statistician. In October of 1582, Pope Gregory XIII brought the wonderful new calendar into the world, hence known as the Gregorian calendar. This brought the dates back into alignment and dictated that three out of every 100 leap days be skipped which pretty much addressed the drift problem. In 2,800 years, this calendar will drift out of alignment by one day, and we'll need to fix it then, presuming that humanity lasts that long. It's touch and go as of recording this show. And so, history was made. Julius Caesar's name went on to be associated with many things. Emperors, childbirth, calendars, salads. Yeah, I know, I know, the Caesar salad wasn't named after those Caesars, I get it. Pompey the Great became Pompey the Late. The mighty kingdom of Egypt, which at this point was twice as old to Julius Caesar as Julius Caesar is to us, that was absorbed into the Roman Empire. Dante got a good book out of it. Shakespeare got two bestsellers. And all of it hinged on the fact that only one person knew the date. How different might the world have looked today if Bibulus had known what month it was? Bibulus would find some small measure of revenge, however, and that sometime after his death. Bibulus' widow, Portia, would eventually remarry. Is the name Portia familiar? It should be. She turns up in Shakespeare, too. Her new husband was none other than Marcus Junius Brutus a close friend of Julius Caesar, perhaps even his illegitimate son, and ultimately, one of the men who killed him. So Bibulus' wife's new husband kills Julius Caesar. In 44 BCE, Gaius Julius Caesar was told to beware the Ides of March. According to Suetonius and Plutarch, a few days before his death, Julius Caesar was warned by a seer that his life would be in danger no later than the Ides of March. On the day itself, as Caesar walked the streets, he came across this same seer and called out to him, The Ides of March have come, and here I am. Aye, the Ides have come, replied the seer. But they are not yet gone. Twenty-three stab wounds later, Julius Caesar learned that even he needed to pay attention to the date. And so, anyway, long story short, That's why we have leap years.